Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. In this episode, I sit down with Trevor Hoppe to discuss his new book, Punishing Disease, which looks at the public health response to the HIV-AIDS epidemic. The conversation focuses on how the disease became a target for criminalization through policies and laws that punished the sick. Welcome to TSP Office Hours. I'm your host today, Katie Tabordawit, uh, coming to you from Montreal for the 2017 ASA meeting. And today I'm sitting down with Professor Trevor Hoppe to discuss his new book, Punishing Disease, which looks at the relationship between punishment and the AIDS epidemic. Professor Hoppe, welcome to TSP Office Hours. Thanks so much, Katie. Okay, so one of the big undertakings in this project is that you put the initial response to HIV AIDS in context of the longer history of disease control, and specifically the public health response that demonizes or punishes the sick rather than actually helping them with treatment. Mm -hmm. Uh, So can you tell us a little bit about what you learned when you dove into this history of what you call punitive disease control? Sure. I think when I went into the project, I think many people might expect that punishing people living with HIV and their sexual practices is part of a longer history of controlling deviant sex. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of what I had in mind. But the more I dug into the public health history of disease control, I started to see some parallels that weren't really about sex as much as they were about controlling people who are living with infectious diseases. And that starts with, you know, medieval Europe to the plague, uh, the quarantine programs that came out of that, uh, to... Um, you know, civilian conservation camps during World War II that they, where they rounded up um, sex workers and housed them in um, what you can only really call as concentration camps uh, out of a fear that they were going to transmit um, syphilis in particular, but also gonorrhea mm-hmm. and chlamydia. Um, and so I'm looking in the book at, at those moments in history when controlling disease becomes punitive or takes on aspects of punishment Mm -hmm. Um, and the criminalization of HIV is the latest iteration of that but you're right in the book I try to connect it to this much longer richer history Mm -hmm. and so one of the things that stuck out to me is you say unlike a lot of medical sociology which has this focus on medicalization this um, you know referring to the process of things becoming medical problems you actually kind of flip that. And so you're looking at a medical problem that then became labeled a social deviance or badness. Exactly, yeah. So Peter Conrad has that great turn of phrase Mm -hmm. um, from badness to sickness to talk about medicalization. And so I turn that on its head to think about, you know, how does this thing, a virus, which is normally a medical problem, most people would think of it as a medical problem, become labeled as potentially criminal Um, And so there are lots of ways in the books that I'm able to explore that process, how laws get passed. And so that moment where criminalization, you know, moves from just an idea to a law and how that happens. 
how that law is then applied in practice and how people are controlled and punished under that law. Um, and then who's being impacted because, you know, one of the concerns always with the criminal justice system and infectious disease as well is, you know, these things aren't evenly spread across the population. There are certain communities that are more or less impacted. And so I try to think about how that can shape how punitive the measure is, whether, you know, if it disproportionately impacts a, a particular community. Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit about the how HIV was initially labeled? Because you kind of talk about it in the book of how detrimental it was, how it was labeled as, you know, remind me, it's uh, like gay autoimmune disorder. Or there was a there was a title specifically that really had that social stigma to it. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of talk us through that about the labeling process? Absolutely. So doctors, medical authorities really made a grave misstep when they first labeled um, what we now know as AIDS as gay-related immunodeficiency. And they did that because many gay men were becoming infected with HIV and, and suffering from AIDS. Um, but the, at the time, we didn't know what was causing it. Uh, and I think that's important to remember. It, you know, people thought it might be a virus or a bacteria, but there was really not a consensus. So there was actually a lot of different theories about what was causing AIDS. And by naming it gay-related immunodeficiency, medical authorities implicitly communicated a causal relationship between being gay and getting this disease. And so some Americans actually have this idea that you can just spontaneously, AIDS sort of spontaneously emerges in -hmm. in gay sex because of this sort of fumble early on in the epidemic. Um, And so that had the effect of adding a layer of stigma immediately to the disease in how Americans understood of it. They thought of it as a gay plague You have to remember in the early 1980s, that was Ronald Reagan's ascendance. It was the new right was coming to power, a moral majority. Um, You have people like Jerry Falwell out there who are saying really hateful things, not just about gay people, but about AIDS, uh, viewing AIDS as divine retribution Mm -hmm. for moral uh, depravity. Uh, So... So that those early years of the epidemic really set the stage for all that's come since and the, and the way that AIDS was so shrouded in stigma and, as I argue in the book, linked to punishment or ideas of, you know, punishment because people who are living with the disease were viewed as, um, you know, they were getting just desserts, essentially, mm-hmm. paying for their sins. Mm-hmm. What kind of punishments did that include? So I think for conservatives, the idea was that that the AIDS itself was punishment. You know, they had this idea that that um, that if you got sick with this disease, it was because you were a bad person, um, and that then you know folds into the idea that we should control, we should coerce, we should punish people who are living with the disease because we always already view them as stigmatized as um, potentially criminal. Mm-hmm. You know, in the nineteen eighties. Gay sex was still illegal in many states in the United States. And um, injection drug use is obviously still illegal in in most places in the United States. Um, So the people who were contracting the illness were were mostly people that Americans already thought it was criminals. Mm -hmm. Um, So the idea to punish those individuals was not such a, you know, leap of faith. It it happened pretty easily. Mm -hmm. And we were talking earlier about how kind of surprising it is given 
that in sociology, there are several pieces of scholarship that talk about the HIV AIDS epidemic um, in terms of public health and social movements and stigma. And yet uh, no one has really looked at it in this sense of criminalizing or punishing. Why do you think that is? I think in the book, one of the things I talk about that in, in public health, there's this tendency to study HIV in a particular way. We go out, we look for people who are quote unquote high risk. We try to identify behaviors or practices that cause them to be, you know, in air, I'm doing air quotes, of, I can't really get that <laughs> over, the, over the radio, but, um, you know, the, the, we're, 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 we're labeling these people as high risk. We're investigating what um, behaviors might be putting them at that risk. And also looking for psychosocial measures of depression or other things that might be causing them to engage in quote-unquote high-risk behaviors. Um, so public health just keeps, you know, that's the model of studying infectious disease in public health is mm-hmm. to study people living with the disease and to, you know, uh, categorize um, and label their, their behaviors. So that means that all the other things about the epidemic get pretty ignored by people in public health, how the state responds, public policy, uh, lawmakers, judges, prosecutors. Um, there just isn't the same impetus to study those things in that field. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sociology has helped a little bit. There's some been some great ethnographies of AIDS. Many of them have been internationally focused because there's so much, uh, the burden of the epidemic is, is disproportionately international. Um, so I saw a real opportunity to, to, to think about, um, connect these literatures, these sociologies of mm-hmm. punishment, medical sociology, sexuality, um, uh, criminalization kind of brings all those things together in this really troubling and frustrating way. Um, so I hope it contributes to the literature in that sense that, that trying to, um, draw the, connect the dots between these, these mm-hmm. fields that are pretty, that don't talk to each other a lot. Yeah, it's funny. That was my next question is, is you're engaging with some pretty big subfields in sociology. So you have CRIM, you have medical sociology, um, you know, there's a little bit of social movements, but then also sexualities. And so I'm wondering what it was like as the researcher to kind of bring it all together and what you think that means for the conversation in these subfields. It's been challenging. Sociology likes people who do one subfield really well. I think there's a like this idea that you should be really good in one domain. And I get that, but my work is always crisscrossed across these not just subfields but also disciplines. My PhD's in women's studies and sociology. I have a master's in public health and sexuality studies. Um, so I've never liked these boxes very much <laughs> and found them very frustrating. So it was li- the book was liberating in that sense, that I could break down those boundaries, that I didn't feel constrained by them. I wasn't having to worry about publishing in a medical sociology journal or a punishment journal or, you know, a general sociology journal. I was, I was, the book allows you to write your brand mm-hmm. of sociology, you know, bring that into the world. And that was the coolest part of it, is that I didn't have to be a hamstrung by these artificial boundaries. Um, so I hope that people who are in medical sociology, who are in criminology, who are in sexuality studies, I hope they all can find something. I think they can in the book that, that resonates with a concern or 
um, uh, uh, object of study that they that they work on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really the goal, and I, and so I hope that's yeah. I, mm-hmm. I guess that's one of the key ideas of the project is yeah. tying those threads. It's funny as I was reading it, I kept thinking this would be applicable to so many different syllabi and courses, um, and I was also thinking about you know, if you were to assign this to a class, especially of undergrads, who might be young enough that they don't really know much about the history of the AIDS epidemic. Um, Those of us who remember it or have studied it, um, you know, I feel like today maybe the information is maybe a little taken for granted or or just not known or not talked about. Um, So I think it's really cool to have this study that kind of brings it, brings it back, makes it relevant to so many fields but also kind of reminds us that this is very much a problem still it's still happening yeah Uh, and i think many of my students you know when i ask them um and and this is in new york state where they have comprehensive sex education Mm -hmm. i ask them how risky you know do you think it is for a person living with hiv to have sex with someone who's hiv negative you know what do you think the odds of transmission are in x y or z scenario and they think usually it's like 100% in their mind. They're like, it's almost guaranteed to happen. And so when I tell them the odds are really more like, you know, minuscule, one in a hundred to one in a hundred thousand, depending on what practices you're looking at, you know, I think their eyes sort of widen a little bit. That's a moment yeah. where they're like, wait a second, you know, that's, that can't be right. Yeah. Uh, because they just don't have a lot of understanding of the mm-hmm. disease. And like I said, this is in New York State where they have comprehensive sex education. Yeah, it's so. funny. I, I had my comprehensive sex education in New York State growing up there in mm-hmm. Western New York. And I still remember uh, the teacher telling us that he is uncomfortable shaking the hands of people with AIDS because he still has some underlying fear wow. that that's how it's transmitted. So, like, that's what I was taught just a few years ago. Oh, man, that's Isn't really... Isn't that horrifying? <laughs> that's challenging to hear because, yeah. uh, you know, it's like 1988 still yeah. for so many people. And that's why, you know, I think criminalization still thrives because you, we have this environment where so few people um, have medically accurate information about the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I, you know, in the book, I try to really take not just the criminal justice system to task for the way that they handle this, um, medical problem, because I think there are lots of problems that, you know, the, with the way that they do it, but also public health, you know, public health doesn't get a free pass here. They've mm-hmm. been complicit in some ways in the way that they've communicated about the disease, whether it's gay related immunodeficiency, the way they talk about high risk groups, or the way that they, um, you know, in the book I look at, at HIV prevention posters and the way that those communicate certain notions of responsibility for managing the disease um, to the broader public. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's a problem and it's not one... Many people I talk to about this issue frequently are like, oh, the criminal justice system is just so terrible. <laughs> you know, which is, you know, there are lots of problems with the criminal justice system, but I, I also hope that we, people in public health, realize that, you know, this is something that they can do something about as well. Mm -hmm. So as for a last question, I'm kind of wondering um, about your next steps in your work. If you think you'll continue on this path of looking at the criminalization of illnesses, um, if you're going to continue focusing on on HIV AIDS or what your next projects are or interests. Yeah, I've kind of found this little niche that's right between medical sociology, criminology, and sexuality studies. And 
I do have a sense of what my my next project is, and it, it happens that it's through a case of uh, involving HIV, where mm-hmm. there was a defendant in New York State, very famously accused of infecting about a dozen young white girls. Yep, I remember that. An African-American man uh, made, made headlines across the country. You know, racism and, home, uh, and fear uh, of, of victimizing young white girls drove a lot of the discussions about that case. Uh, Nushan Williams is the defendant's name in that case. Uh, New York State didn't have an HIV exposure law. He was charged under sexual assault statutes instead because some of the girls were underage. And uh, years later, he was supposed to get out of prison in 2010, but New York State passed a law soon before that that said that they, uh, and states around the country did this, that they could keep Nushan and other people they labeled as sexually violent predators, this medical, theoretically a medical category, in in detention that may or may not resemble prison very closely wow. for as long as they see fit. Uh, Minnesota is actually a, a, um, has one of the worst policies in this regard in the way that they treat um, sex offenders. So the way that we medicalize um, sexual deviance and the way that that enables more punishment I think is really interesting uh, and troubling and socially urgent. Uh, so it has all these things that are attractive. It's something I care about politically, but it's also sociologically really fascinating. Um, so uh, I don't exactly. Uh, I've started to publish a couple of papers looking at sex offender registries and how um, demographically who's being affected. But ultimately, I want to look at that connection between um, medicalization and criminalization, and and just how they um, surprisingly can enable each other in some ways. It's funny, on on the way to Montreal a couple of days ago when I was in the airport going through TSA, I was thinking of your book, I'd just been reading it, and on the screen came across this warning for a, a virus, and the virus was named, I think it was named like Middle Eastern virus or mm-hmm. something, like it was so blatantly stigmatizing already there was no information about it and so it's interesting because i don't know if before reading the book i would have necessarily um it that it would have caught my eye and then it's it's almost like you make this argument where as the reader you're like oh duh this has been happening all around us but because it's not these aren't conversations happening it's very easy to miss absolutely i mean i think the swine flu epidemic years ago was originally called Mexican something, I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly the name, but we, we always try to connect uh, these diseases to stigmatized populations. Um, I think because we want to feel safe, and so we want to other the mm-hmm. disease and say it's not, it's not you know, going to affect us, us usually meaning you know, white people, mm-hmm. um, middle class people. Uh, so it's a problem. Uh, that, that, that impulse to other is what feeds stigmatization and and ultimately criminalization in this book. Uh, so I'm glad you know you you're picking up on those things because I think it's a skill to have because we're not really trained you know to think I think about public health critically in the way that we are about the criminal justice system. You know people get making a murderer. You know Netflix's series. <laughs> people get really up in arms about yeah. the criminal justice system, but public health. You know we don't have the same kind of. Uh, uh, politics around or concern about the way that public health is done. So mm-hmm. that's one of the things I definitely 
I hope comes out of this book is that people are like, oh yeah, you know, there's mm-hmm. something that's going on here too that we want to pay attention to. Yeah. No, I really enjoyed the book. Um, so it it's, becomes available in November 2017, correct? Exactly. Available for pre-order on Amazon already. I think by the time this comes out, um, it will be out on bookshelves mm-hmm. across the United States. So it is available to order. Right. And it's through University of California Press. Mm-hmm. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much, Trevor Hoppy, for joining us for Office Hours. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, and I'm really excited to see this book be added to some syllabi soon. Yay! Thank you so much, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. This week's episode of Office Hours was produced by me, Matthew Galarciampo, as a part of the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. You can find more content over at the societypages.org.